Good morning. Let's begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, in this Thanksgiving season here in America, we want to give special thanks to you for the blessings that you've provided for us throughout this year, for your love, for your mercy, for the truth as you've revealed to us through Jesus Christ, for the accomplishments he's made for our salvation. We pray that uh, over this next year that you will bless each of us as we take this message about you to the world, that this world will be lighted for your soon return. Be with us today as we are studying, that we will have ever-increasing clarity in our knowledge of you and your kingdom. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And uh, I want to just give you guys an update. Two weeks ago, I uh, was at the First Baptist Church of Frisco, Texas, and I want to say hi to our friends down there in Frisco and Pastor Chuck and thank him for having me down. Uh, Really good time. Presented um, the God-shaped brain for church services uh, Sunday morning. And then uh, Sunday afternoon, we did uh, the aging brain, uh, the developing brain, and depression talks. And really positive responses. Enjoyed this perspective very much. And we appreciate the opportunity to come down there and share. And then last week, I was in Placerville. I want to say hi to our new friends in Placerville, California. And we did a seminar out there. And on Friday evening, I did a new talk I've never done before, which... Um, I was a little nervous to do because, as you know, my programs tend to be very centrist-focused and not sectarian-focused in, in the Christian um, perspective. But they especially requested, it's the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and they especially requested that I do a program focusing on, quote, recovering Adventist truths. And so I did a Friday night program on uh, the history of Adventism and uh, the, the perspective that the church was called uh, to present. And, uh, and there was a lot of non-Adventists there, and they actually really liked the program as well. And so it went very well. And then on, uh, on Sabbath over there, we did the uh, God-shaped brain and designer dictator and a talk on depression, which is also very well received. So very positive responses, and we're happy for that. And then the most exciting news that I'm thankful for this week is the Journal of the Watcher is finally out in Apple <laughs> in the iOS format. On Thanksgiving Day, it, uh, it came out in the iBook store. It's already been out in the Androids uh, since October 1, but as you know, we've struggled to uh, with the, with the Apple review process. And it is now, if you want to get it, you have to open your iBooks app. So it's an app that's on any Apple device, not the iTunes app, the iBooks app. And then in there, up at the top, there's a store. You go to the store, iBooks store, and just type in Journal of the Watcher and you can get it. And uh, we have um, cards out in the back that you can take and share with people. And if you've gotten it, then go back and give us a five-star rating in either device. It'll really help. So be sure and do that. Okay. So class today, we're doing lesson number 11 in the book of James, and the title this week is Getting Ready for the Harvest. And think about the title, Getting Ready for the Harvest. What's necessary for the harvest to be ready? Yeah, Having some reapers, you know, I didn't even put that on my list. I, I put things like maturity, have to ripen, have to grow up, have to develop. Uh, I put these things there. But yes, having reapers, is a, it's true. We need to pray for that as well. Um, as we look at this idea of ripening, maturing, growing up, in practical terms, what does it mean? What is Christ waiting for? His character to be reflected in us. She says his character to be reflected. Is he actually waiting for then the ripening, the maturing, the growing up of his people? So what does that look like? I'm going to read to you out of Hebrews chapter 5, starting in verse 11, going through 6 verse 1. It says, We have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Now listen to this next verse. It's quite profound. Anyone who lives on milk, still being an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. Think that through. When we talk about righteousness by faith, we talk about having a righteous character, right about being righteous. But if you're still an infant, still on milk, you're not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, and, and, and notice functionally something about the mature in this next phrase. For the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil, or by practice have developed the ability to discern the right from the wrong, another version says. How do we get that ability? By 
using using the ability by training by exercise by by practicing discernment discrimination thinking weighing evidences and then keeping on verse 6 uh, chapter 6 therefore let us leave the elementary elementary childish teachings elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity not laying again what are we not to lay again we're we not to focus on again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death so what's elementary here according to this passage what's the what's the baby stuff what's the milk I did something bad, mommy. Will you forgive me? I did a bad thing. I need to repent for my bad deeds. Repentance from acts is baby stuff. List of do's and don'ts. Don't do this. Do do that. Baby stuff. According to this passage, anyway. Now, as you think about growing up and maturing, does it have anything to do with something we called the seal of God. Being sealed. Receiving the seal of God in your forehead. Is that is anything to do with maturing, with ripening, with, with growing up into Christ? Yes. Are they connected? Yes. Yeah. This is uh, some quotes from one of the founders of our church. This first one is out of the faith I live by. Just as soon as the people of God are sealed in their foreheads, it is not any seal or mark that can be seen, but a settling into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, so that they cannot be moved. Just as soon as God's people are sealed and prepared for the shaking, it will come. What is this settling into the truth intellectually and spiritually? Any thoughts on that? Intellectually and spiritually. What's intellectually settled? Comprehension, knowledge, understanding the realities of God's design. But what's spiritually being settled? Any thoughts about that? It's in your heart. Okay, which means uh, accepting it means take it farther. I like this. Internalizing, Internalizing. practicing it. Yes, I like this. Which means it becomes part of your life, your your character. So it's not just something you cognitively know, it actually becomes part of your identity, part of your individuality, part of your personhood, how you see yourself. You're a person of integrity, you're a person of honesty, you're a person that, that would be a violation of your sense of self to, to operate in a way deviant from this. You've been changed in the heart, yes? Now, what you just said is what I've tried to get across ever since I've been in this class, <laughs> It's not things that we do because we feel um, we're earning our way or because we're uh, so, what do you call it, legalistic. Mm-hmm. It's because it's part of our life. Mm-hmm. That's, how we, that's our heart. That's how we feel in our heart. And we have to live this way because that's what we feel. Re- yes. It's not because we think we're going to earn our way to heaven. But notice, intellectually and spiritually settled. Right. Some people are spiritually settled into the lie. It's in their heart. They believe it. They feel it's right. And they can't be moved from it. But it's intellectually false. It's not just spiritually settled. It's intellectually settled. It has to be both. You follow what I'm saying here? Yeah. Paul, for instance, prior to Damascus Road, had, it, had, had his convictions. He was zealous. He, he, was, he was certain this was... But he was wrong. And he talks about that. He talks about his zealousness, but it was, it was based on, on misunderstanding and, and falsehood. He talks about the Jews being zealous in that way. So yes, it is important, but it also has to be the both. Intellectually truth-based and going beyond just the head knowledge, though. It has to be, as you're saying, too, part of who we are, built into our identity. Here's another one. This is out of 7 Bible Commentary 970. The seal of the living God will be placed upon those who bear a likeness to Christ in character. Character, not personality. Personality is things like um, whether you're introvert or extrovert, you like outdoor sports, whether you like to read. Uh, these are personality things. Upbeat, smiling, more kind of quiet. And, but no, character is honesty, faithfulness, ju- uh, trustworthiness, um, kindness, mercy. Um, these are character traits. And then this last one is out of... Um, Sons and Daughters of God, page 51. Love is expressed 
in obedience and perfect love casts out all fear. Those who love God have the seal of God in their foreheads and work the works of God. If you love God, so it's not just, it's, it's having that heart of love as well. What is the new covenant experience in Hebrews? I will write my law. And which law is that? The law of love, where we love God and others more than self. So why is this important? This idea as we look towards the harvest. Yes, question in the back. What happens to the people who don't receive the seal of God? What happens to the people who don't receive the seal of God? Any thoughts about that? I have my thoughts. If you don't receive the seal of God, what is the seal of God? Being so settled into the truth about God, intellectually and spiritually, you can't be moved from it. So if you don't settle into the truth, what do you get settled into? Lies. The lies. And if you get settled into the lies, what do lies do to the person? Lies believed, break the circle of love and trust. Broken love and trust result in? Fear, fear and selfishness. They become more fear-ridden, more selfish. When God comes, when Christ returns, we're told if you read the, the descriptions of a second coming, that those who are settled into the lie, when they look at him, what do they see? What do they want to have? And they beg for the mountains to fall and to hide them from him who sits on the throne. Has he got two faces? Is he looking different at them than he is at us that are saved? No. It's they're so settled into the lie, they have this view of God. This is why Jesus said to Nicodemus, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Remember he says this to Nicodemus? No one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. But he said to those who were going to crucify him, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of, of, of glory coming in the clouds. Remember? Or it says in Revelation, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. So wait a second. Those who pierced him, those who crucified him, are going to see him in the right hand. But you can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. It's not visual seeing here. They see his physical manifestation, but they don't see the kingdom of love. They see, because they're settled into the lie, they see Satan's version of God. They believe that, Satan is, uh, uh, that Jesus is like Satan says, so they see this terrible dictator with all power coming back to kill and punish them, and they're terrified because that's what they see. They don't see the kingdom of God because they haven't been born again. And this is what happens to those who are not settled into the truth about God. They're settled into the lie, and they're terrified of him. Yes. Isn't so like Timothy displayed, despite his tormentors, love, and it moved, it may have started, Paul, <laughs> on his road. But, so he, it was his nature. Stephen? When Stephen was being stoned? Yes. Yes. So it, it, it was noted. Yes, so we see as Stephen is being stoned, we see in his nature, he still loves these people, and he says, God, don't hold this to their account. Don't hold it, hold it to them. And he sees grace. He sees forgiveness. How can this be? We know that in the history of the early church, when the Christians were taken into the a Roman arena and martyred, that they sang hymns. They had uh, an expression of peace and joy, and it disturbed the Romans. The Romans were afraid and terrified of death. And here's this group of people that have some peace. And, it, and that's what helped spread the gospel, because they lit, left the arena, and they said, what do these people know that I don't know? They're not, ta- they're not afraid to die. And so they, they, they started asking and inquiring, and the gospel spread. So, what is the functional difference between the immature and the, and the mature Christian? The functional difference. Because only those who mature, grow up, settle into the truth, are healed, are regenerated to be like Christ, only those are actually trustworthy and are in a condition to be brought into God's kingdom. Did you hear what I said? So I'm going to walk you through again very quickly, unless you want me to go slowly. <laughs> I was planning on going quickly because some of this information is redundant and, and I don't like to do a lot of redundancy but sometimes people tell me I want to hear it again so go slowly I was going to go through again the seven levels of moral obedience and show you what the difference between maturity and immaturity is and why so level one the, moral obedience, moral decision making in other words how do you know what's right and wrong how do you know whether this is right that's wrong how do you tell level one, reward and punishment what determines whether something's right at this level is you get a reward for it. If it's wrong, it's wrong if you get punished for it. This is the slave mentality. Doing what they're told to do so they'll get either rewarded or get punished. This was Israel as slaves in Egypt. At this level, 
A ruler establishes his right to rule by displays of might and power over all others. They're the strongest, they're the most powerful, they can inflict the punishment, therefore they have the right to rule. Um, Mercy or failure to punish at this level is evidence of weakness and is immoral at this stage. So if you've heard people, God must punish. It's a moral obligation to punish. They're level one. This is the most immature level of, of thinking that you can be. People at this level see a God of mercy as a marshmallow God. A God who isn't worth our um, worship because he's, he's not punishing wickedness. If you heard this type of description again, revealing level one. God meets people where they are, and thus Israel, as slaves in Egypt, God met them at that stage and verified his right to rule them by displays of power over the Egyptian gods. He showed ten times that they were not gods at all, and God is powerful, because they were level one primitive slaves, and they needed a display of power to trust him. Level two. Marketplace exchange, quid pro quo. Uh, You do something for me in exchange for an agreed uh, response of value that we both agree on. This is Israel at Sinai. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. If you've damaged my eye, then justice requires that I damage your eye. Equal uh, amounts of repayment. Sadly, this is the Middle East still today in a great degree. Um, At this level, vengeance is a moral obligation. If somebody does you wrong and you don't pay them back with equal punishment uh, and severity, then you are immoral. It's a moral obligation to pay back in kind. This is Israel when they said at Sinai, all the Lord says we will do. We have an agreement. We do this and the Lord blesses us with that. This is also the health wellness gospel that is so common today in America. Um, If you pray this prayer every day for 30 days and do your part, then God will bless you with more extending your territory and give you more wealth. This is the level two, marketplace exchange. Level three, social conformity. At this stage, right and wrong is determined by a community consensus. This is the child who says to their parents, "Well, well, mom, everybody else is doing it. Why can't I do it too? If everybody else is doing it, it must be right. This is Israel when they wanted their kings. All the other nations have kings. We should have kings too. It's the right thing to do. And this is Israel also collectively punishing. You can see this in certain cultural groups when the family gets together to collectively stone the woman who marries outside her faith or converts to Christianity. They have this collective punishment because the consensus of our community says, that's wrong, you shouldn't do this. We must punish. Level four, law and order. Right and wrong at this stage is determined by a codified system of rules impartial or supposedly impartial judges, and an imposed prescribed punishments for breaking the rules. At this level, respect for those in authority is held uh, supreme, so they are rarely questioned. He must be right, he's the president. He must be right, he's the pope. He must be right, he's the pastor. He's God's anointed. We shouldn't question what the anointed of the Lord says. He's the high priest, he's the pastor, so forth. This was Israel at the time of Christ. We have a law, and the law says... And it's better for one man to die than the whole nation. This is Israel at the time of Christ. Level five, love for others. Right is seeking the best interest of the other persons or other people. And other people have value irrespective of what the rules say. Right is not determined by a checklist, but by doing what's actually helpful to other people. Circumstances dictate what is right and wrong, not a list of rules. Generally, it's considered wrong for a man to stand up in church and rip a woman's blouse open. It's generally considered wrong. However, if she's having a heart attack and he's the EMT with a defibrillator to shock her heart back, then it would be considered right. The circumstances are dictating what is right and wrong, not a list of rules. This was Jesus on the Sabbath and the Pharisees who opposed him. He's healing on the Sabbath. And he even said, you take your donkey out. Uh, or he says, Moses, you, you want to keep Moses' law about circumcision and you'll circumcise on the Sabbath. Shouldn't we heal the whole man on Sabbath? But they wouldn't allow it. They wanted to disown him anyway. So Sabbath, the Sabbath laws don't supersede loving others. Now, level six, principle-based living. Realizing how God has actually designed this universe 
and life to operate. The design protocols, the principles upon which things are actually based, and living in harmony with them because it's understood to actually work this way. This was Jesus and the apostles after Pentecost. It's understood we do what's right because it is right, and right doing pleases God. Dealing with people at level four and below explains the instructions given to Moses in the Levitical law. It's look at our, our laws here in America. How many different types of laws are there in America? I mean, if we took the laws from the states and the federal laws, how many rooms would we fill up if we got them all in books? Why are there so many different laws? Because these are children and you have to have a rule for everything. And when you're at level four and below, you have to codify everything. You have to have a rule for every circumstance, every situation, every exception. You've got to codify it. But when you're at level six, you can boil it down to two. Love God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. Because when you actually love people, you won't steal from them. When you love people, you won't murder them. You won't try to cheat with their wife. You won't maliciously uh, spread rumors about them. You'll, you know, when you love people, you don't need all the codification anymore. It's gone. And then... Level seven, enlightened friend of God. You not only love other people, you not only understand God's design, you understand God's purposes and where you fit in that purpose to fulfill your purpose in his cause. Uh, John fifteen fifteen, Jesus speaking to the disciples, I no longer call you servants. Rather, I call you friends because servants don't understand their master's business. Realizing the truth about God, his character, nature, design, the issues in the great controversy, we want to fill our role in his purpose in the great controversy and bringing things to conclusion. This is Jesus and those who are ready for translation when he comes. Those people described in Revelation, chapter 12. So, during moral development, and we develop through stages, a person is generally not able to comprehend more than one stage above the stage they're currently living and operating at. They can't comprehend those higher stages. Most people are operating at level four and below. And those people tend to persecute people at level six and seven. As Jesus was persecuted, as the apostles were persecuted, as anybody through history, Gandhi, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., as they operated these higher principle-based living, they end up getting persecuted by people operating with the rules-based living. So, now I want to consider an example and we're going to go through all seven levels with the example of brushing your teeth. Okay? Level one, brush your teeth. Why? So you don't get punished. And if you do, you get praised by mommy. If you don't do it, you get punished. If you do, you get praised. Level two, marketplace exchange. Child says, mommy, I'll brush my teeth. You can read me a bedtime story. Making a deal. Let's make a deal. Level two. Level three, social conformity. Brush your teeth so we don't get teased at school. We do brush our teeth. We get accepted. School. We want to fit in. We want to have that social consensus. Level four, uh, this is uh, brush your teeth because if we don't, there's a prescribed behavior contract in the home and there's a, a you know, no dessert or something pre, predetermined of what those consequences will be. Level five, love for others. Why do we brush our teeth? Because we realize it's an inconvenience to our parents to take us to the dentist and that they would have to pay dental bills and would cost them money and we want to reduce a burden on them. So we want to brush our teeth because we don't want to burden our parents. Level six, principle-based living. We realize that if we don't put energy into the system, second law of thermodynamics, if energy is not going into the system, that system decays. And so we don't want our teeth to decay, and so we put energy into the system by brushing and flossing to keep them from decaying. And then level seven, an enlightened friend of God. We realize that man was made in God's image, and the body is the spirit of the holy temple. And we understand that we cannot fulfill our purposes as effectively in God's cause if we're sick. And if we don't brush our teeth, we get cavities, we can get infections, and we can become sick. And if you know the history of humanity, one of the modern um, inventions, if you will, that has allowed us to live longer is modern dentistry. Prior to modern dentistry, the cavities in the, uh, would get infected and it would cause um, uh, systemic infections, and they would get infections of their heart from the, from the mouth infections, and this caused people to die young. And so we recognize, hey, I'm going to keep my spirit temple in good condition so I can not be sick, so I can be a minister to others to fulfill God's purposes, level seven. Now notice, after I went through all these levels, this is where the lesson comes home on maturity and immaturity. People at all seven levels are brushing their teeth. Notice that. All seven levels are brushing their teeth. 
but only those at level five and above can be trusted. Below level four, level four and below, are only doing it because of some potential threat. A codified punishment, they might get rejected at home, they might not get the deal, they might get some negative consequence, level one. Uh, It's only level five and above can be trusted. With no higher reason, and you think about this, if kids grew up, and in their development, they ne- when they left home and launched, the only reason they ever had for brushing their teeth was because mom said so, and if I don't, I'll get punished. They, they've never learned another one. It's the only reason they have. Would they keep doing it? Probably not. Probably not. Now listen to this with this in mind. And this is what Paul's talking about in Hebrews chapter 5 when he talks about those who are immature on baby food, focusing on the do's and the don'ts, are not acquainted with righteousness. They don't have the law written on the heart. They're not righteous. They're not trustworthy. They're not safe to be in the presence of God. Here's um, Signs of the Times, July 22, 1897. A sullen submission to the will of the Father will develop the character of a rebel. By such a one, service, by such a one, service is looked upon as drudgery. It is not rendered cheerfully, and in the love of God, it is a mere mechanical performance. If he dared, such a one would disobey. His rebellion is smothered, ready to break out at any time in bitter murmurings and complaints. Such service brings no peace or quietude to the soul. This is level four and below. You've got a rule. And I keep the rules because if I don't, I'll get punished. I don't get punished. But in my heart, I don't want to do it. I'm thinking how I can get away without doing this. This is level one through four. They're not ready for the harvest. <clears throat> Now, this is out of Christ's Object Lessons, page 97, and notice they'll contrast the immature level of obedience with the mature level. The man who attempts to keep the commandments of God from a sense of obligation merely because he's required to do so will never enter into the joy of obedience. He does not obey. That's at level four and below. Got our rules. You better do it or else. There's no obedience there. This is that person who is living in fear. Let's keep going. When the requirements of God are accounted as a burden because they cut across human inclination, we may know that life is not a, not a Christian life. True obedience is the outworking of a principle within. This is level six. Level six and higher. We have a principle. We understand those principles. We operate on principle. This, it springs from love of righteousness, the love of the law of God. The essence of, right, of righteousness is loyalty to our Redeemer. This will lead us to do right because it is right, because right doing is pleasing to God. Notice the difference in motive here. We're not doing it because we're afraid to get punished. We're not doing it because we're hoping for a reward. We're not doing it because um, that we want to get accepted by our peers. We're not doing it because we've made a deal. We do it because we understand reality. Why do, why do you brush your teeth today? Because hopefully it's principle-based. You understand the second law of thermodynamics, and, and it makes so much good sense to you, and you, would, you would, would want to do it even if mom never had the rule for you when you were a kid. Can you correlate this with Peter's life? Let me finish this point and then come back to that. So God wants us to grow into full maturity. Functionally, if we think about why so many young people leave the church, so many young people, as they get to adults, leave the church because they've never been taught reasons beyond levels one through four. Why do we have to go to church on Sabbath? Why do we have to not do this? Why do we have to do it? Well, because the Bible said so. Because if you don't, God's required. God's going to have a judgment. There's an angel keeping record of all your misdeeds. And if those deeds are, aren't, aren't forgiven and you haven't had the blood of Jesus, then God is required to punish you one day. And that's justice. He's got to do it. And the kids never grow beyond level one through four. They never understand God's actual design, how things are actually constructed to operate. And thus when they grow up, they go, this is ridiculous, and they leave. How many of you went through a period like this? Come on. Nobody? Just, yes. Yes, exactly. Yes, a couple of, okay, we got four honest people in here. (laughs) I'm just joking with you guys. (laughs) But yes, and and this this is normal to question this stuff. But hopefully we come to understand reality and we say, no, no, no. Now I realize I don't do this because of a rule. I don't do this because I'm threatened with punishment. I do it because it makes sense. Because this is how life operates and I want to be healthy. Okay, now your question about Peter. What's Well, 
he apparently thought he was safe and he was firmly determined that he would never reject Jesus and never deny him. And yet Jesus told him, you will. When you're converted... Yeah, so let's talk about that. This is a good one I use with couples a lot, with, with couples in relationships. Because I, I, uh, it's a good one to understand. Is this person really somebody I want to commit my life to and marry or not? Look at this story and it'll, it'll uncover something very powerful for you. Peter in the upper room, Jesus says, hey, everybody's going to deny me. You're all going to run away. Peter says, not me, Lord, not me. I'm going to be there. I'm not running away. Now, was Peter lying? No. No, he was not. So if he wasn't lying, that means Jesus could trust him, right? No. Get your mind around that, folks. Many people miss this. They're talking to someone, and the person is absolutely sincere, and you know they're not lying. Therefore, you believe you can trust them. Not so. Now, did Peter love Jesus? Yes. Yes, yes and here's the key. But he still loved himself more. As long as self wasn't being threatened or pressured, he loved Jesus, and he wanted to follow Jesus. He wanted to be there with Jesus. But when he got personally threatened, when his life was on the line, he threw Jesus under the bus. He denied Jesus to protect self. And then when he went out, he wept bitterly. He converted. He died to self. And he says, no, 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 I love Jesus more than me. And while he wasn't perfect and he made mistakes after that, he didn't deny his Lord again. And so when you're looking for a life partner, it's not, are they honest when they say they're going to be true to you? It's, do they love you more than they love themselves? That's the question. And many miss this. And so I've seen people whose husbands or wives, either way, have cheated on them. And they come back, and they're sorrowful. And I'm, I didn't mean to do it. Will you please forgive me? And you look them in the eye, I'll never do this again. And, and you put them on a lie detector, they would pass. Because they mean it. They're not lying at that moment. That's what they mean. But the question is, do you love that person more than yourself now? Have you really been converted? And if the answer is no, you still can't trust them. This is what's happening. This higher level, growing past just a list of rules, growing past just a, a certain level of love. You have to come to love Christ with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Way in the back, yes. How do you understand how one would seek first the kingdoms of the world, but do it in the name of Jesus? Would this not be another way of one not having the character of God or experiencing the settling in of the truth? What level is this? Seeking the kingdom of the world under the guise of Christianity? Yeah, I think that that happens all the time when we simply exchange the truth of God's law of love and how he's designed things for a worldly construct of a system of rules and imposed punishments, and then we operate under that system uh, under the guise of Christianity. You can see this in all different levels of history. The Inquisition and what they did to people during the Inquisition was all done under the name of Christ, but what were they doing? What methods were they using? Coercive tactics and pressures. We do this in uh, many many uh, families do this. This is why in Christianity... There's no difference in the rate of domestic violence than in non-Christian homes. There's no difference in the rate of divorce. There's no difference in the rate of child abuse. There's no difference in the rate of pornography. There's no difference in the rate of addiction than in non-Christian homes. How can this be? Because Paul says in the last days they will have a form of godliness but deny the power. And that form of godliness is this legal, penal, religious system of rules and, and judicial authority and imposed punishments by the dictator in heaven. And this has no power to heal and restore. We have to come back to the true picture of God as revealed in Jesus and his design for life that transforms the heart and soul where the law is written on the heart and mind, where we love God and others more than self. Then we don't abuse our families and so forth. Let me keep going. With this in mind, this idea between the the penal view versus this design view and, and what maturity looks like, Here's a quotation from the Desire of Ages, and we're going to walk through this. It's very interesting. It says, Men will surely set up their laws, it was right into the question we just asked, to counterwork the laws of God. Think that through. How do you understand that? Historically, when we're still operating in Christian mode under the imposed law view, this is interpreted to say they set up their religious rituals to be different than the rituals Jesus prescribed. So they have sprinkling instead of immersion. They have Sunday instead of Saturday. They have, in other words, they have a different set of rules. And they miss the whole point because that's not it. Men will surely set up their laws to counterwork the laws of God. Notice the next sentence. They will seek to compel the consciences of others. And in their zeal to enforce these laws, they oppress their fellow men. So what kind of law is being described? 
a law that requires imposition and enforcement. What kind of law is that? Do you have to threaten and coerce people to breathe? You know what I'm saying here? Natural law, design law stuff, you don't have to do that. If somebody, as I said to somebody before class, legislatures can pass laws to make marijuana legal. They cannot pass laws to make it healthy. And that just, it's a big difference between imposed law versus design law. God is designer, creator. His laws are the protocols by which life is built. So, when you have to impose penalties and coerce people to do something, you're not operating in design law. You're not operating as God has constructed things. You're operating as created beings do with a list of rules, coercing and forcing. This is the real change. Keep going. The warfare against God's law, by the way, this is our page 763. The warfare against God's law, which was begun in heaven, will be continued until the end of time. Every man and woman will be tested. Tested how? Which way do you operate? Are you going to coerce other people? Or are you going to love other people? You can operate on design law. You can operate on a list of rules. Obedience or disobedience is the question to decide by the whole world. All will be called to choose between the law of God and the laws of men. Here the dividing line will be drawn. There will be but two classes. See, I'm very much no longer a sectarian person. You know, the R- Rwanda really helped clear, clear this up for me and, and, and many other things. Sectarian meaning denominational. In Rwanda, if you remember, there were one million people killed in four months, all in the churches. 11% of that country is Seventh-day Adventist. 11%. Less than 1% of America is Seventh-day Adventist. 11%. Do you know that it broke down? They did research afterwards. The killing zones were in the churches. People would kill. They'd be butchering each other with machetes. They would stop and have uh, the Eucharist or, 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 or pray at the altar. And they'd get up and go kill somebody. This is what happened. The pastors would, would go out and people were running from, some, from the other side. They'd say, come to my church and, and bring them to the church for sanctuary. And then they'd go out and get the death squads and come in and kill them in their churches. And where it broke down, it broke down on, on this. Those who worshipped an authoritarian dictator God participated in the killing. And those who worshipped a God of love, like Jesus revealed, helped protect those who were trying to, trying to hide. Amen. Regardless of denomination, denomination did not matter. Catholics, Protestants, and Seventh-day Adventists, including clergy, have all been convicted of war crimes participating in the killing. Didn't matter denomination. What did matter is which view of God did you hold. This is where it broke down. So... Um, There will be but two classes, just two classes. Every character will be fully developed. Either a character like Christ, love God and others more than self, or a character like the devil who coerce others. And and will show whether they have chosen the side of loyalty or rebellion. Remember, Satan in heaven alleged that God's law cannot be obeyed and disobedience must be punished, urged Satan. Remember this? This was actually the page before this where she says, in the opening great converse, he declared the law of God cannot be obeyed. And, if, um, uh, and God could not forgive sin. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. On the page before this quote. This is not, oh, by the way, natural law has inherent built-in punishment. If you smoke cigarettes, there's a punishment for that. God does not send an angel from heaven to give you lung disease if you smoke cigarettes. If you jump off the Empire State Building, God does not send an angel to break your legs when you hit the ground. He doesn't do it. This is inherent. It's built in when you deviate from design. If you don't brush your teeth, the example, God will not send an angel to give you cavities. Drill holes in your teeth. It won't happen. There's inherent punishment from deviating from design. But rules that have no inherent design require some authority to punish. Now notice, then the end will come. God will vindicate his law and deliver his people. Satan and all who have joined him in rebellion will be cut off. What do you understand that to mean? Will be cut off. Let go. God sets them free to reap what they have chosen. This is design law, not an imposition. Notice the very next words in this quotation. This is not an act of arbitrary power on the part of God. The rejecters of his mercy reap that which they have sown. God is the fountain of life, 
And when one chooses the service of sin, he separates himself from God and thus cuts himself off from life. He is alienated from the life of God, Christ says. And Christ says, all that hate me love death. God gives them existence for a time that they may develop their character and reveal their principles. This accomplished, they receive the result of their own choice. By a life of rebellion, Satan and all who unite with him place themselves so out of harmony with God that his very presence is to them a consuming fire. The glory of him who is love will destroy them. What kind of law is this being described here? This is design law. This is natural. This is not an imposed system of rules. At the beginning of the great controversy, the angels did not understand this. Had Satan and his hosts been left to reap the full result of their sin, they would have, per- they would have perished. But it would not have been apparent to heavenly beings that this was the inevitable result of sin. A doubt of God's goodness would have remained in their minds an evil seed to produce a deadly fruit of sin and woe. And this is exactly what Christianity is teaching today, that it is not a result of sin. Death doesn't come from sin. Death comes from God who must kill you if you don't accept the proper legal payment for your sin. And this is why Christ is waiting for us to grow up past level four, to come to understand how he's actually built things, to understand that only in harmony with him is there life. If you step out of the design, life doesn't operate out there. It doesn't exist. So why is Christ not returned? Because the children of God are stunted in their growth. They are being fed a pablum of lies and distortions about God that prevent us from growing up and maturing. That's why we haven't grown up. We're we're being fed milk in the churches. Way in the back, another question from online. The fact that Satan could say that every sin must meet its punishment shows that someone who was at level seven can degenerate to level one. How do you avoid regressing? How do you keep growing? Yeah, that's an assumption that Satan or Lucifer is actually at level seven. We don't know that to be the case. We don't know that to be the case. We do know that he had some understanding of God's goodness. Whether he was actually at level seven in spirit he may have understood 11.7 intellectually. But it's obvious from some of the scripture texts. For instance, in Isaiah chapter 14, it says that um, Lucifer um, wanted to ascend um, and be like the Most High, it says, and be like the Most High. Well, ascend and be like the Most High. Set myself up on the sides of the north and be like the Most High. Well, think that through. If he actually wanted to be like the Most High, then we'd have movement like we see in Philippians. He who was equal with God did not take quality with God as something to be grasped, but humbled himself into the form of a servant. So it lets us know that he actually had a misconception in his own mind about God. He didn't fully really understand God's ways. And it was based, it says he was perfect in all his ways until iniquity was found with, in, in him. He began to focus on self, and he began to focus on self. He began to project, project those self-deceptions out back onto God. And he had a distorted view of God, that God is self-promoting and self-exalting, and Lucifer is going to use his power to exalt himself up higher, which is just the opposite of the way Christ did it. This is uh, Christ's Object Lessons 4.14. The coming of the bridegroom was at midnight, the darkest hour. So the coming of Christ will take place in the darkest period of earth's history. And I'm reading this because I want us to focus on what does it mean to grow up? I I would like Christ to come. I think he's waiting. I've got this somewhere in my notes. But when the bridegroom comes back for his bride, is he coming back for a child bride? Think that through. See, he's not coming back until we're a mature bride. That's what he's waiting for. So, so the coming of Christ will take place in the darkest period of earth's history. The days of Noah and Lot picture the condition of the world just before the coming of the Son of Man. The scriptures pointing forward to this time declares that Satan will work with all power, with all deceivableness and of unrighteousness. And that's quoting out of 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 and 10. And that's where Paul says the man of sin will arise and set himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. What temple is that? And how did he get set up in this temple, proclaiming himself to be God? In other words, causing people to say, this is what God is like. How did he do it? 
by infecting Christianity with the imperial dictator law construct of God. And this is how he set himself up in the minds of men through the dark ages system that God is a dictator and his laws are imposed rules he must enforce. Keep going. His work is plainly revealed by the rapidly increasing darkness, the multitudinous errors, heresies, and delusions of the last days. Not only is Satan leading the world captive, but his deceptions are leavening the professed churches. Leavening the professed churches of our Lord Jesus Christ. The great apostasy will develop into darkness deep as midnight, impenetrable as sackcloth of hair. The, to God's people, it will be a night of trial, a night of weeping, a night of persecution for the truth's sake. But out of that night of darkness, God's light will shine. Now understand, this is metaphor. It's not actual physical darkness here. It's not actually photons. This is the darkness of misconceptions about God. It's lies about God. It's misrepresenting him as a dictator with rules, the source of punishment and death. And out of this dark, distorted view of God, light is going to shine, meaning truth about God is going to shine forth. Keep going. It says, darkness will cover the earth and gross darkness to people, but the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. This is Isaiah 62. 60 verse 2, which means what? What does that mean? His glory, the light will shine upon you. His glory will be seen upon you. Revelation chapter 14, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. What does it mean to give him glory? To, to reveal his character, his true character, because this time in earth's history is the time when people were to make a decision about God. When he is to be judged. Unless you have that imperial Roman view, then it's time when the courts are open and God is sitting up there and he's going through record books and he's looking at all the deeds and he's seeing how much blood you have on your account. Well, you're two ounces short over here. (laughs) No, that's not it. It's the hour in which Satan has set himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. And we are to be in awe of God, be in amazement, present the truth about him, give glory to him in our lives because the hour for people, the light to shine into the darkness has come. Let me keep reading in the context of page 414 here. It is the, and this is right after, right after uh, it says, the Lord shall rise and his glory shall be seen upon you. Next verse. It is the darkness and misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world. Men are losing the knowledge of their knowledge of his character. It has been misunderstood and misrepresented. At this time, a message from God is to be proclaimed, a message illuminating in its influence and saving in its power. His character is to be made known. Into the darkness of the world is to be shed the light of his glory, the light of his goodness, mercy, and truth. Those who wait for the bridegroom's coming are to say to the people, Behold your God, the last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of his character of love. The children of God are to manifest his glory. In their own life and character, they are to reveal what the grace of God has done for them. This is the third angel's message. It's just not referenced here. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment. Reveal the final message of mercy to the world. Why hasn't Christ returned? Because this message of him has not gone to the world. Instead, this dark ages, imperial Roman God construct that is sitting up there, imposing laws, requiring punishments, may be, must be appeased, have to have his wrath propitiated. This ugly thing has gone to the world and has held the world captive and darkness is covering the minds of men. It's our privilege to have this light shine on us and take this light to set minds free. So what preparations are we making for the Lord's return? Are we presenting the truth about him and his design law of love? Anybody have any thoughts about how we can do it more effectively than we're currently doing? Anything that you think could help us do this better? Be more willing to put ourselves... Out. And if you if, if, if be, be willing to put ourselves out there, if, if you have some ideas after this, because maybe you're, it'll cogitate you thinking this afternoon, you come up, well, that'd be a good idea. Send it to us. Email us. How can we do more than what we're doing? What we're doing is, you know, we give away DVDs. We give away our Bible study guides. We webcast. We podcast. We record the class. We give, we give, uh, make our books available at, at cost. We network with others, and we've got networks going with other organizations around the world. Uh, we conduct seminars. Uh, we're doing a lot of stuff to help put this message out there. If you can have other ideas, let us know. Are we requiring our understanding of the Bible doctrines 
to harmonize with the character of God as revealing Christ. Do every doctrine that you hold, can you say, this doctrine is true because it reveals this about God? It shows God's character. One of the problems with the Seventh-day Adventist church historically has been, we took the doctrines and separated them from the great controversy over God's character, disconnected them, put them out as standalone little toy soldiers that we could support with proof texts from the Bible, and they stand alone on their own, like the state of the dead, like the Sabbath, like, uh, like the, the, the uh, way you get baptized, and so forth and so on. You can proof text those as, this is the right way, this is what the Bible teaches. But disconnected from the truth about God, because the war, it says in Corinthians, we battle and uh, war against everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we do that, we just make a system of rules, a system of, of oppression, really, where there's no joy, there's no power. You've got to keep all these rules because here's what the Bible says, do it. But its doctrine is only important as it enlightens us and leads us to a greater knowledge of God and his character. Are we doing that? Are we moving past symbolism and metaphor to reality? Any symbolisms, any metaphors that you've heard that you're still stuck on, you can't seem to see what the reality is? Throw it out. Let's see if we can deconstruct it. Classics. The biggest one in the Adventist church, and I'm not going to go through it today because we did it a few weeks ago, is the sanctuary. So many Adventists are stuck on the symbolism and have never deconstructed reality. Other classics, washing the blood, cleansed by the blood, saved by the blood, power in the blood. And have people, Christians never go to reality. What's the blood? Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. John 6. Was he talking cannibalism? No, this, isn't, this is metaphor. It's not literal blood. So what is the blood? Here's a couple of quotes, what our church taught historically. This is Christ Object Lessons 102. The leaven of truth works a change in the whole man, makes the coarse refined, the rough gentle, the selfish generous. By it, the truth, the impure are cleansed, washed in the blood of the Lamb. The truth, hmm. Through its, the truth, life-giving power, it brings all, all there is of mind and soul and strength into harmony with the divine life. Man, with his human nature, becomes a partaker of divinity. Christ is honored in excellence and perfection of character. As these changes are effected, angels break forth in rapturous song, so forth and so on. So what does it mean to be washed in the blood? To have truth dispel lies from your mind, to be restored to trust in God that you open your heart and you become a partaker of the divine nature. The Holy Spirit comes in and takes what Christ has achieved and reproduces it in us. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. Or Peter says we become partakers of the divine nature. So partaking of the blood of Christ is actually a transformational process that makes you have different motives being settled into the truth both intellectually and spiritually. We're different. How about covered by the robe of righteousness? And this is out of Christ's Apostolics 3.11. Only the covering which Christ himself has provided can make us ready to appear in God's presence. This covering, the robe of his own righteousness, Christ will put upon every repenting, believing soul. The robe woven in the loom of heaven has not one thread of human devising. Christ in his humanity, now notice what he did. This is huge. Wrought out a perfect character. What's wrought out mean? In Desire of Ages 761, she says, the law requires righteousness, a righteous life. This man has not to give. But Christ came in the form of man and developed a perfect character. This he offers as a free gift to all who accept him. Why does the law require righteousness, a perfect character? Why? Why does the law of respiration require you breathe? Why does the law of nutrition require you eat? It's how it was designed. This is how life is built. That's all. So that's why the law requires it, because this is God's construct for, for living. He wrought, and so he wrought out a perfect character, and this character he offers to impart to us. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart, the will is merged with his will, the mind becomes one with his mind, the thoughts are brought in captivity to him. We live his life. This is what it means to be clothed with the garments of his righteousness. See, again, it's the same thing as partaking of the blood. 
It's transformational, regenerational, recreational, new motives, new hearts, being settled into the truth, both intellectually who God is, and spiritually our characters become like his. We love what he loves. We like to do what he likes to do. We love holiness. We love honesty. We love integrity. We don't want to lie. We don't want to cheat. We're different. That's what it means to be settled. That's what it means to be covered. How many times have you heard, well, this covering is like a magic, invisible suit of armor that when the Father looks at us, he can't see how wicked we really are because we're covered in what I call the candy-coated rotten apple theory. Take a rotten apple, coat it in candy, and it looks good on the outside, but it's still rotten to the core. Take a sinner, cover it with a robe of righteousness. When the Father looks, he sees perfect righteousness of Christ, but the sinner is still rotten to the core. That's a lie. It's not that way. It's transformational. If you're not being transformed in the inner person to love the things that God loves, you're not being covered by the robe. Do we know what the final message of mercy to the world is? Do we know that? We're talking about growing up into Christ, becoming mature. Do we understand that cleansing of the sanctuary is the cleansing of minds and hearts of God's people from the lies and selfishness and restoring Christ-like character? That's what cleansing of the sanctuary is. Do we understand that Revelation 14 is about God being judged to be completely trustworthy and our role to reveal his character? Do we understand Babylon is a system of confusion, confusion over God and his character, confused because God's law of love has been replaced with a system of rules. And just like in every government, there's all these contradictory laws, and you have to have Supreme Court judges and parse out the difference between them. It's all, the, our legal justice system in America is confused. And so is religion and Christianity when you put God's law as a system of rules. It's confused. And that's why we have 34,000 different Christian groups arguing what they believe this text means and that text means and what this horn is and what that interpretation prophecy is. We're all Because we have replaced God's design law with a system of rules. Do we understand what the Elijah message is? Which is God is not like Baal. God does not require appeasement. God does not require propitiation of his wrath. God is not like Baal. Sunday's lesson. Just give me the Sunday. <laughs> the latter rain. What is the latter rain? It's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, no question. Will God pour his spirit out on people who are settled into lies about him? No. Will he empower people to take a false message about him? So if we want the latter rain, we must be settled into the truth intellectually and spiritually so we can be empowered to take the truth about him. So we have a role to come back to the truth about God in preparing for the latter rain. The seeds of truth must be planted in the heart, and then the seeds of truth get watered by the latter rain to bear fruit. The Bible uses the metaphor of wheat and tares, and only at harvest time, at the harvest, are the wheat and tares separated. There's significant lessons in that reality. So as we're running out of time, I'm going to run through them real fast. Number one, we are not trying to, to root out the tares. This is the church, by the way. Okay? The wheat and tares growing up together in the church. We're not to root out the tares before the harvest. Because in rooting out the tares, we will root out some of the good wheat. And we'll cause disruption. And people that are actually on God's side will be disillusioned because they don't understand and can't see the heart of these people. And even though this person is a tare, they look like a righteous person because you can't tell the difference from the outside. And some of the righteous will be torn out and the church will split and we'll lose people if we try to pull out the tares at this time. It also means, though, that everyone in the church is not one of God's people. Even in leadership in the church are not necessarily God's people. There'll be tares in the leadership of the church. And that means we must all think for ourselves, come to our own conclusions, be sure we are maturing as God would have us mature, and not trust another person to do our thinking for us. And I've said it in here, I'll say it again, I am not here to do your thinking for you. I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'm here to challenge you to think, to stimulate you, to motivate you to research and, and weigh the evidences and come to your own conclusions. Counsels to write on editors, page 33. We must not think, well, we have all the truth. We understand the main pillars of our faith, and we may rest on this knowledge. The truth is an advancing truth, and we must walk in the increasing light. Or this one, Review and Herald, June 18, 1889. The spirit of Phariseeism has come has becoming a, has been coming in upon the people who claim to believe the truth for these last days. They are self-satisfied. They have said, we have the truth. There is no more light for the people of God. But we are not safe when we take a position that we will not accept anything else than that upon which we have settled as truth. 
We should take the Bible and investigate it closely for ourselves. We should dig in the mine of God's word. Some have asked me if I thought there was more light for the people of God. Our minds have become so narrow that we do not seem to understand that the Lord has a mighty work for us to do. Increasing light is to shine upon us. How many have had this? We've got the truth. I remember, I I, I can't say that, never mind. Ask me after class. Are we growing and advancing in the truth? Or are we resting satisfied on, on truth discovered a decade ago, a century ago, a millennia ago? Or are we growing and advancing? And then the last lesson about the wheat and the tares. In the end, when the wheat and tares are separated, what is the basis of that separation? Is it the opinion of the harvester? Or is it the condition of the fruit itself? Thus, in the judgment, God's judgment does not determine the destiny of anyone. Which is, the, which is what the imperial dictator views people tell you. God's going to determine. He's going to have a judgment. He's going to decide. He's going to weigh the evidence. No. What determines is the actual character of the people. God's judgment is merely the accurate diagnosis of each person. Thus we read in Hosea, God's judgment, uh, Ephraim is tied to his idols, let him go. Or in Revelation, let him who is righteous be righteous still, let him who is wicked be wicked still. His His judgment is simply the accurate diagnosis of whether we've been reconciled and restored to Christ's likeness or whether we've been settled into the lie. Some, uh, some other good quotes. Man, it's a really good quote uh, from the lesson that I, I never came across before until this week. Uh, we don't have time to go into it, and I want to mention it because um, the lesson asks, why are we still here? And what's going on? And our greatest enemy is from within the church, not from outside the church. And this is a quote about how this enemy rises up in the church and what it looks like. And it looks like Phariseeism. It looks like legalism. It looks like coercive pressures. It looks like the attempt to control and pressure people politicking in the church. And Ty Gibson has just written a really nice blog. It's a long blog where he goes into this and describes this infection in our church. And I put the link in the notes for those who'd like to find that link, but you can find it at lightbearers.org, and it's called the Old Covenant Brood. This is uh, this is uh, this group, and he really describes this battle in our church and how our church has been infected with this distortion of a dictator-type view of God. So, our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are exactly as Jesus revealed a God of love, a God who's designed the universe to operate in harmony with you, a God who sent Christ to reveal the truth, win us to trust, and restore us back to the way you've designed life to function. We pray that you will send your spirit now to take all that Christ has achieved, reproduce it in us, that we will have characters like like you, but also that we will have the the pieces of, of, of the evidences that have been given through time brought together that we can see the larger view. We can see the, the landscape of reality as you have revealed it to us and that we will be settled intellectually into this truth and spiritually that our characters will be like yours. We pray in your holy name. Amen.